Welcome to Foundations of Pentecost, dedicated to the repairing, restoring, preserving, and perpetrating the Foundations of Pentecost. It is our prayer that as you listen, you will be encouraged and strengthened in your faith. And now, today's study from the Scripture. Welcome to this special edition of Foundations of Pentecost. I was not teaching this week, and so today we are going to be presenting a message preached by Reverend Gary Hampton on July 24, 1990 at Sunset Hill Campground. It is a timely message entitled, When a Nation Changes Colors. In the book of Nehemiah, the book of Nehemiah, chapter 13, a friend of mine from years back, but Augusta Wilson, told me that he was praying one time and he had prayed for a good while. And he asked Lord, the Lord to let him see an angel. But the buster told me he saw something for others. He said it scared him so bad. He never again prayed to see an angel. Brother Ronnie Harrison was praying one time at a church. He was down to the altar, was back to the entrance, and uh, he was praying, God, I would like to see an angel. I want to see an angel. This has been years ago. Well, Ronnie's little old girl coming to church. And it was carpeted, and she walked up very softly. She wasn't trying to sneak up on him. It just worked out like that. And he's in the midst of this prayer, praying to see an angel. And she reached out and tapped him on the shoulder and said, Daddy, and Ronnie like to die. I can't recall if I have ever asked in my prayer time to see an angel. If you have, that's no problem. There's 104 appearances of angels to men in the Bible. But I'll tell you what I am interested in, and I have done some, uh, a lot of praying in my lifetime, and that is to see Jesus, to know him. I'm not talking about just a physical vision, but to be able to comprehend and to see the Lord Jesus Christ. It would be wonderful to see an angel, but I don't think it would be near as thrilling. It would probably be a shocking thing but I don't think it would thrill me near as much as if I could behold the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. Don't you want to see Jesus? And then let him have such an experience in us that others can see him through our lives. Nehemiah chapter 13, I'm beginning in verse 23. Nehemiah chapter 13, starting in verse 23 reading on to the end of the chapter, which is verse 31. Nehemiah chapter 13, beginning in verse 23. In those days also I saw Jews that had married wives of Ashdod, of Ammon, and of Moab. And their children spake half in the speech of Ashdod, and could not speak in the Jews' language, but according to the language of each people. And I contended with them, and cursed them, and smote certain of them, and plucked off their hair, and made them swear by God, saying, You shall not give your daughters unto their sons, nor take their daughters unto your sons for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin by these things? Yet among many nations was there no king like him, who was beloved of his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, even him did outlandish women cause to sin. Shall we then hearken unto you to do this great evil, to transgress against our God in marrying strange wives? And one of the sons of Jehoiada, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was son-in-law to Sanballat, the Hornite. Therefore I chased him from me. And now the man begins to pray, and he says, Remember them, O my God, because they have defiled the priesthood and house and the covenant of the priesthood and of the Levites. Thus cleansed I them from all strangers and appointed them lords of the priests and the Levites, every one in his business. And for the wood offering at times appointed and for the first fruits, remember me, O God, for good. This is a reconstruction time in the life of God's people. Last evening I spoke from the book of Ezekiel, 
and talked about how the glory of the Lord had departed from the temple. Until this day, that Shekinah glory in that respect has never returned to national Israel. Yet, there was a some recovery. There was some revival. There was a good stir. Let me say it like that. I don't want to minimize it. But it was not in comparison to that in the zenith of Israel's glory when Solomon's temple was filled with the presence of God. Seventy years have gone by, and now these men, the remnant of the Jews, they're beginning their return back into the homeland. And they're wanting to set this up right. But while they have been gone, there have been some problems occurred among that nation. There's been a mixture of marriages, and some things have happened. And so based from verse 23 and verse 24, I'm going to choose for the topic this evening, when a nation changes colors. These men of Israel, being Jews, had married wives of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. Now these races were enemies of Israel, according to uh, verses 1 through 3 of the same chapter. As a matter of fact, in this same book, chapter 4, verses 7 and 8, said that Ashdod and Ammon were among those that made conspiracy against Nehemiah and the rebuilders of the wall. They made plans to fight against them. And yet, there is intermarriage of some of the Jews and some of the priests with these same people. And these Ammonites and these Ashdodites and Moabites, they were not Christian or Judo-Christian, uh, Judo could I say. They were not followers of Moses' law. They were heathen people. And when there was a mixture of God's people with them by marriage, then God's people did not purify that race that it married into. But that evil race corrupted God's people that had married into them. Verse 24, we see that their customs were changed. Their customs and their culture, their dress, their physical genetics now were changed. They were not 100% Jewish in their look. Their hair was a little different. Their skin color, their features, everything about them now was only half Jewish. There was a mixture. And their language was changed. Instead of speaking Hebrew, they are speaking now a jargon language, a mixture of languages. I don't mean this in a bad way. I don't mean to make fun in what I'm about to share with you, but I know a family, and I know them pretty personally back home. The man is a Choctaw. His wife is a Cherokee. And he being raised and taught the Choctaw language, that's what he spoke until he became an adult virtually. She was raised and taught as the Cherokee language, and they married. Now, she cannot speak Choctaw. He cannot speak Cherokee. And they both speak broken English, and so that's what they converse in, is broken English. Now, there, I could tell you some of the things they say about heavy rolling here on the floor, not under the anointing, but under laughter. I get it, uh, you know, uh, it's humorous the way they express themselves. But you see, it is an integration. It is a mixture. And so when they have mixed together and lived together, then their children don't speak Choctaw, neither do their children speak uh, Turkey, uh, and, but they speak the broken language of English just like mom and dad converse in. So this was kindly the problem here with God's people when they intermarried. But worse than all of these things that I have mentioned, there was a degrading of their true religion. They began to worship idols. And they had, that's why that God brought judgment on them and they were carried into Babylon to start with. But as I said, these are reconstruction days. And back in verses 1, I'd like to read these, 1, 2, 3. Nehemiah is wanting to do this right. So on that day, they read in the book of Moses in the audience of the people. And therein was found written that the Amorite, the Moabites, should not come into the congregation of God forever. Because they met not the children of Israel with bread and with water, but hard Balaam against them, that he should curse them. Howbeit our God turned the curse into a blessing. 
Now it came to pass when they had heard the law that they separated from Israel all the mixed multitude. The fact that they heard the law of God, they said, whatever God says, we don't want to go back to this uh, bondage back in Babylon. We don't want to sit to the rivers of Babylon with our hearts on the willows and, and hear folks say, why don't you worship and sing and why don't you get in and have church and we're not able to do it. They said, we don't want to ever go through that again. So the only way that we can avert that is that we rebuild according to the book that God has laid down for us to do. So in doing this, their main problem was was the integration of their people into the idolatrous heathen religions and the people that practice those. So they are separating here the mixed multitude. Now, 12 years earlier in this, Ezra was a man who had returned from Babylonian captivity, and uh, he'd done a lot of cleaning up among the priests and the singers and various people. There were at least 114 people that he mentions that had wives and children, all that were heathen. And he got under a burden of prayer, and God said there needs to be a separation. Now, I want to say this. You cannot take Ezra chapter 10 as a basis to get up and say, Bless God, bless God, if, you don't, if you're in second marriage, you're going to get a divorce, but the judgment of God's fallen on you. Now, I know that I'm in some, some uh, very thin ice right here, but I want, I want you to understand what I'm saying. There, I do not have the authority vested in me to tell anybody who is in second or third marriage to get a divorce. Do you condone it, Brother Hampton? I tell you what I do. I preach with everything that's in me to keep people out of it. Praise God. I mean, I forevermore put it on thick when I'm in on that subject. It is a sin against God to divorce your companion, and it is a sin against God to remarry if you have a living companion and you marry someone else. But after, if you have been through the misfortune of that and the heartache and the sorrow of that, I do not have the authority as a man of God to tell you to separate. Now, I'm on thin ice, but I just want to tell you, you cannot take chapter 10 of Ezra and preach everybody into separation. Now, back to this. Praise God. Hallelujah. All right. But they were married into heathen idolatry. And God said, you're going to have to get rid of these wives. You're going to have to do that. And so... Ezra confessed and prayed, and he said there in verse 2, there is hope in this matter. What is the hope? We're going to have to get rid of these women. We've got to get rid of these children. We've got to get rid of these heathen customs. That's the only way for us to rebuild and rebuild properly. Now, if you and I are going to rebuild uh, our heritage and preserving our Pentecostal heritage, for the bells, I so appreciate what is written here. I appreciate that. As I was coming to service tonight, and, and I was thinking about preserving the Pentecostal heritage, it occurred to me, we, in many places, don't have that much to preserve. We are at the point, almost, that we need to go down to the very foundations and rebuild. I don't want to argument here on a play of words, but we need to see if what we're trying to preserve is really biblical. And the only way to do that is to get back to the book. And they wanted to clean the place up, and they got rid of the mixed multitude, just like Ezra did 12 years before. Now, you think Brother Hampton is rough? You think Brother Leon Belt is a rough preacher? How would you like for your pastor to do like Nehemiah does in verse 25? He contended with them. What did Brother Burkett say? He said, take issue. This man is not afraid to take issue and contend about this matter. Not at all. Hallelujah. And then he cursed them. No, he didn't get mad at them and do what you thought the preacher had done. No, that's not right. He reviled them or rebuked them and said, hey, you're going to have to straighten up. You're going to have to do something about this situation. And he reviled them about that. And then it said that he smote certain of them. With the belt you've been pastor in a few years, have you ever walked over and slapped somebody upside the head and boxed them real good? 
Man, I felt like it in time or two. How many of you have ever had your pastor to come off the platform and box you upside the head? Raise your hand. Do you think we get a little rough? Well, that's what happened right here. And furthermore, he plucked off the hair. How would you like your preacher to get a hold of you and act like got a hold of your hair, jerk you back and said, I want to tell you one thing. You are going to hear what I say. Now, you think we're rough? This man got rough. We've got this mentality today that the picture ought to be a cross between an old Mother Hubbard and a Santa Claus. That he ought to never raise his voice. That he ought to never get mad. That he ought to never get angry. I'll tell you what we as men of God ought to do. We ought to revisit the chronicles of God's law. And we ought to get in the presence of the holy God that we serve. I'm a talking to us preachers. And we ought to come to the pulpit. Built inside and madness in our eyes and snapping because of the sin that is in this hour. He made them swear by God that they're not going to integrate and they're not going to permit their children to integrate out here in any of this nonsense anymore. Verse 26, he said, Now look, the wise Solomon was the wisest of all of the men on the earth up to the time. But he couldn't handle these heathen women. And do you think the wise Solomon, if he couldn't handle them, do you think that we are wiser than he? Let's review just a moment by memory from 1 Kings chapter 11, verses 1 through 8, about these women in Solomon's life. First of all, that scripture said that he married the daughter of Pharaoh. And isn't that some, some fine outfit to marry? And then he married the women of the Moabites, of the Amorites, of the Edomites, of the Zidonians, and of the Hittites. And it said that these women turned his heart away from God. I want to remind you that Solomon is the man that got down on his knees at that dedication of that great temple and spread his toward heaven and prayed a very long prayer. And when he finished, the glory of God came into that temple. But now he is married in the heathen customs and the heathen women is now turning his heart away from that glorious power and that glorious Shekinah and the glorious holy God of Israel and actually caused him to worship other gods. And did you know that he turned to worship Astaroth? which is the god of the Zidonians. He worshipped Milcom, which was the god of the Amorites. He built a high place out in the country, up in the groves, at, uh, for Chemos, the god of the Moabites. And he also built a place of worship for Molech, the god of Ammon. I don't have time to go through all of these, but let's just look at the first one I mentioned. Here is Astareth. This is the god of the goddess of sensual love. And is it any wonder that Solomon had a thousand love affairs in his life? Is it any wonder that he had so many women that he married to and gathered 300 concubines beside the 700 wives that he had married? He worshipped Astaroth. And who was this Astaroth or Astaroth? This was a god that could be displayed as in the physical features of a man. And the man features would be there in the masculine. But they would put feminine clothing on this masculine image. And then men would dress in women's clothes. And they would come out and worship this God of perversion. And then they would take a female image. And they would put masculine clothing on it. And then the women would put on masculine clothes. And they would come out and worship this God of perversion. And Deuteronomy 22 and 5 is spoken in advance that before they ever got to the land of Canaan, before they ever went in, God said, you're going to a place that, that there's homosexuals and perverts, that, and they dress in a way that, to prove it that, to all the world that, that they're perverted that, against me. 
But he said, when you worship me, you shall not worship with a feminine attire if you are a man. And you shall not vice versa if you are a lady. Hallelujah. Brother, I want to tell you that God is still a God of purity today as he was then. But he began to worship the God of the goddess of licentiousness. And all of these other gods. No king is like him and he couldn't handle it. What happened? Outlandish women did cause him to think, shall we then hearken to you to do this great evil? Do you think if Solomon couldn't get away with it? Do you think that I'm going to stand here, Nehemiah said, and let you do this thing and continue into this heathen practice not on your life? And verse, 20, verse 28, it talks about, uh, just a moment here, verse 27, shall we then hearken unto you to do all of this great evil to transgress against our God in marrying strange women? Absolutely not. And that's why in verse 25 that he told them, you will not, I want you to swear to me, you shall not do it. Now verse 28, what is this the The preachers are involved in it. One of the sons of Jehoiada, or Jordan, the son of Elijah, the high priest, was son-in-law to Sambalat, the Hornite. Yes, Sambalat, the Hornite. Who's he? Back in 478, he's one of these guys that's planning the, the, the uh, opposition against them in Reconstruction. And now you've got folks married into this situation. Let's back up a little bit in the chapter, in verse 4. And before this, uh, Elijah, the high priest, having the oversight of the chamber of the house of our God, was allied to Tobiah. Here's another one that in this very book, in chapter 4, is an enemy against God's people. The inner marriage, and they're never going to get ahead till they break all of this union up. And it says in verse 5, in essence, that this high priest Elijah, he had got a man to come in, put him in the evangelist quarters, give him a monthly salary, and was giving him the food and the tithe, and was taking good care of him. But I like what he done down here in verse 8. It said it grieved me sore. Therefore I cast him out of the house and all of the stuff. In verse 9, I chased him from the chambers. I cleansed the chambers. I'm telling you, there was a house cleaned. Now, I'm not interested in, 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 in just being violent, but I want to tell you something. It would do a wonderful thing and a wonderful service to the kingdom of God if the parsonages in some places and the evangelist quarters in some places had a thorough purging and kick out the TV while he's at it and take out the magazines and, and take the preacher out. I want to tell you if we want to preserve uh, this holiness Pentecostal heritage and we want the glory of God to be among us, uh, we're going to have to put it away, not on your life, uh, not on your eternal life, not on our goodness, not on our name, not on our personality. Are we going to keep God with us unless we have a cleansing? And then the man closed with a prayer and said, God, remember me with good. This nation had once been Jewish, but it's intermingled, and now they're trying to undo it and get it all straightened out. I'm still preaching on when a nation changes colors. Now the next several statements that I'm going to say and illustrations that I give, I want you to know right up front that I am not prejudiced, I am not biased, I am not a racist. I do not feel that any one race is any better than any other. I am simply going to relate to you some basic historical facts in our American history. And again, I am not prejudiced. I am not a racist. I just want you to know these things. Now, the men that have traveled and what traveling I've done in other countries, the majority of countries in the world are one-color countries. Uh, for example, India is a one-color country. Haiti is a one-color country. Mexico and all and all, many countries are the same color. Now, there was a time in the United States of America before it became such that our nation was a pure red nation. Of nothing but what is found on 
of the red North American Indians. And though there were various tribes, and there were some war and conflicts among some of the tribes, yet they were basically the same and the same kind of people. They lived basically the same way. They worshipped basically the same in their heathen practices, and everything was basically the same. But there began immigration, and white men began to come to this country. And it wasn't long until more white men came, and they began to oppress the red American Indians. They began to push them westward. They began to move them on out. I had been raped uh, all of my life at the end of the Trail of Tears. We have a lady in our church whose mother traveled over the Trail of Tears. Sister Luella Hampton, Hampton, the lady's grandma, my wife will get me out here in a little while. And uh, I live just a few moments' drive from the end of the Trail of Tears. And right where I'm at is rich in, in Cherokee history. And I was raised in the Cherokee. As a matter of fact, I'm part Cherokee myself, and I'll share with you a little bit about it in a moment. But the Cherokees used to be an industrious people, and the reason I'm singing them out is because I've been raised among them, as I said. The Cherokees were driven out of Georgia. They migrated to this part of the country out in Oklahoma and Arkansas in two different groups. One was under the leadership of John Ross, the other under that of Stan Wadey. And I know the white man did not treat the American Indians right. They did not do that. Some white men did, but some did not. And during the Civil War years, Arkansas went with the Confederacy. Oklahoma, what would be the part of Oklahoma, would uh, stay with the northern part. And then John Ross and Stan Wadey and the two different groups of Cherokees that once were together down in the south were now on opposite sides of the war, and they fought against each other. And through the years, there has been civil strife among the Indians themselves, which probably would not have been among their own tribes had it not been for some of the things and some of the pressures that the white men put upon them. Now then, before you think that I'm a full-blood Indian, I'm not. I hear again. I'm not racial. I'm not trying to be. I'm just trying to tell you that a nation changed colors. And then, more and more as the white men came, then they brought the English language to this country. And did you know that the Cherokee language is in danger of extinction? There are many Cherokees that were raised in the Cherokees' homes among the full blood, but the full blood mom and dad would not speak it. They would speak that broken English, and they would send their children, full blood Cherokee children, to the English-speaking schools, and they needed to learn to speak English. And then when these full blood children, who were now English-speaking, they had children, and then they would mix with the white people more and more in marriage. And soon, the Cherokee language, that it was almost extinct back in our part of the country. They are trying to revive that. Hallelujah. And there is another thing about the Cherokees that used to be when I was a boy, ever since I can remember until about maybe 10, maybe 15 years ago, they used to have the stomp dance or the powwow that was right near my house. Now get a load of this. How much Indian are you, Brother Hampton? I am 564. My boys are 5,128. We have pedigreed cards to prove it in taste and practice. Now you're laughing, but that's still about 24 pounds of Indian. So it's more than you thought. Now, Get a load of this. I used to go to the powwows. I used to go to the stomp den. They had a big fire. The women, they had uh, turtle shells where they would have empty uh, uh, milk cans, or I'm talking about little uh, condensed milk cans. They would empty those out of some kind of cans, and they would put shells or rocks in them and tie them around their legs, and then they would make the noise as they danced around the fire. There would be a man who would lead the dance, and they would go round and round. And I've been to many of them in my lifetime. Well, did you know what? Mr. Sam Bird, whom I visited the other day, he's getting very sick now. Sam is a full blood, and he's around 70 years old. But Sam Bird, back years ago, when I was about uh, 15, 16 years old, just before I'd gotten saved, I was uh, up there one day, and uh, he said, Hey, we need to train some young leaders uh, in this stomp dance. 
And he said, would you like to be one? I said, me? I'm not Indian. He said, does it make any difference? We're needing some leaders, and the Indians are not as interested in our powwows as they used to be. So I said, okay. And so here I go, almost 100% white man, and here I'm going around and around. And you know what I'm saying? Oh, he, oh, he, oh, he, oh, he. I'm being That's right. I said it. You know what he's doing? Training me to be a stomp dance leader. But I want to tell you, not only do the Indians or the white men rather don't need those anymore in our area, the Cherokees themselves don't need them. They don't have any stomp dances. They don't have any powwows where I'm from. I know it's heathen. I know that it was not a godly practice. But the point I am saying is that the Indian culture has been updated so much. Why? That I'm speaking of the Cherokees. I know there's many other tribes. I know there's many others. But I'm familiar with the Cherokees. They don't speak British English. And now our country does not speak Cherokee or any one of the other languages as a major language. It's not pure British English, but it's become integrated. And we are a nation that used to be red. But now our nation has changed colors and has become a white nation. Instead of the tribal chiefs that, that used to go to one another and smoke the peace pipe and try to make the deals and try to legislate in their crude ways. It wasn't that way after a time. The white men came, drove them wherever they wanted them. And the white man sits in Washington and makes the rules for the red man. The nation changed colors. I want you to know we're in the midst of another color change right now going on in America. And again, I'm not prejudiced. I'm not biased. Black men have stayed in my home. I'll say this before I get into this way. Black men have stayed in my home for nearly a month at a time. I'm as congenial and as good for them as any other people. I am not prejudiced. I'm simply relating facts. But there was a time the white men begin to bring in the black slaves and they were meant in the white man's eyes to be a subordinate people. I'm not saying they should be. I'm saying that's the way it was in our history. They, and the white man wanted to keep them a subordinate and let the white man own all of it. Let the white man keep it all. Let the white man uh, keep them as slaves and keep them oppressed. But in the year 1860, 1860, Mr. Lincoln was elected to the presidency. And before that he was assassinated, I want you to know that he had signed into a law the Emancipation Proclamation, and the black American slave was free. And through the years now, on up to this time, you see a continual incline. There have been setbacks, but we're seeing a continual pace and no telling where it'll go. I'm not prejudiced, no. But there was a time there were no black mayors. There were no black highway patrolmen. There were no black uh, men in office. There were no black attorneys. There were no black judges. You hear me? Our nation is changing colors. I'm telling you, we're in the midst of a color change. And what the white man once thought could be subordinate, somehow this has come up and joining momentum. And listen, there will be a time probably that there will be a black man elected to the presidency of this country. And as time goes on, more and more people that are black and of other cultures and times that will occupy the House and the Senate. We're in the midst of a nation that is changing colors. Now let's get one thing clear. I don't care if a man has African hair or gets blonde. I don't care if he has a red ear and a yellow nose and a black arm and a white foot. If he's full of Holy Ghost, I'll vote for him. I don't care. 
we're seeing a great that now. I'm not trying to get back to that. That's, I'm just using this as an analogy. I wouldn't care if Turkey, Japanese, Siamese, or Picanese, if they're languages, were the languages. I wouldn't care if we talk pig Latin, if we all understand it. I don't care. I don't care how your hair looks like as far as uh, uh, the kind of individual. I don't care if it's Arab or straight or black or blonde or blue, whatever God made you. I don't care. That's not the point of my message. But I want you to know something has happened in America. Our nation is in the midst of a color change. In the year 1980, the white percentage is 79.9. 2080, do you know what it's going to be? 49.8% of the population of the U.S. will be white. And over half of our population will be non We are in the Brother Hunter, what does all of this mean? Now we're getting down to nitty-gritty. This is what it means. Did you know that Southern California is half Hispanic? Did you know that California, your state, Illinois, if you're from Illinois, Florida, New Mexico, Texas, New York, those states already in certain pockets or localities, the number one language is Spanish and English is a second language. And by the year 1995, four and a half years from now, some of those states I mentioned, English will take a second place statewide and Spanish will be the number one. We are in the midst of a nation changing color. The influx of immigration, the Hispanic and all others from various places, we're in the very middle of it. What's going to happen? And listen, I'm not anti-Japanese, please. I, I keep saying this over and over, but I, if I was home and just talking to my family, I wouldn't care what I said so much, but you never know where this is going to go. But listen, the Japanese have recently bought the King 7-Eleven the whole thing. They bought Grand Rex, a major corporation in my hometown there in Salem Springs, Arkansas, right nearby where I live. What's going to happen? These Japs these are going to bring the Buddhist religion into our country. A friend of mine from Sri Lanka was with me for about a month. He said when he first got into this country, he went to uh, the city of Pittsburgh and he saw four Hindu temples. The Eastern religions are invading us. This is what's going to happen. And listen, did you know that 81% of those who are legal immigrants in Southern California, 81% are registered to vote? You hear me? What is going to happen when these kind of people begin to elect their own kind and put them in on Capitol Hill and mandate laws for you and I? We are in the midst of traumatic times. We're in the midst of a nation that's changing colors, that's changing religions, that's changing a number of things. And what is the problem? It is that these folks have come in, and listen, I'm not anti-immigrant. Don't, don't misunderstand. But I'm going to get down to spiritualize this to the church here in just a moment. One of the real reasons, though, one of the major reasons I think the first and foremost reason is not the Emancipation Proclamation nor the immigration rate, but I'm going to tell you what I think that the greatest problem is in the whites losing the race as, as domineering our position in this nation is that we have bought in to family planning. I stand here 40 years old. And I had no sense when I was a young man. I have been married to the same woman since 1968. And had I known then what I know now, instead of me having one preacher and one other saved boy, I'd have seven or eight if God had blessed my family. 
We have been stooges. We have been smart. We did not want to be bothered. We have this mentality that a large family is a burden to us. I beg your pardon. Friend, we have missed it because we are not honoring the Word of God. Psalms 127 said that, Lo, children are in heritage of the Lord, and the fruit of the room is his reward. Happy is the man that has his quiver full of them. They shall not be afraid, but they'll speak with the enemies in the gate. And the reason we don't have very many to stand in the gate and face the enemy, we have bought in to the family planning. We get out and teach against abortion. You know why we have abortions? Because it started with procreating superintendents and other milder rooms. And then it gets to the point to satisfy the craving and passion of wreck sex. It turns to abortion. The devil's not dumb. How was he going to try to control the population of God's people in Egypt? Almost the same as abortion. It just was not medically advanced and kill them as soon as they're born. That's the way to do it. And the devil knew then that you can help hold down the number that are multiplied in a race that then the evil race of Egypt could remain superior. And that's what's happened because we, the American people, have been stooges. Hallelujah. Man, you ever heard a camp meeting message like this? Oh. All right. Get on with it here. 13 and 2. They heard Salem. The Burkitt spoke about it today. Numbers 31 and 16 said that he caused them to sin in the matter of Peor. And Brother Burke had described it so well of how that after he got back home, perhaps, and he thought it all over, and he dreamed about dollars, and he counted dollars in his mind, and he had thousands of dollars. He said, I'll make one more trip and give this evil advice. Just tell them to give their heathen wives to them, and God himself will curse them. But Salem is not just a man that just appeared in numbers and worked in, and it's all over with. Second Peter 2 and 15 says that Salem has got a doctrine that was working in that time. Jude 1 and 11 says that Salem's doctrine is there again. Revelation 2 and 14, Salem's doctrine is there again. And what is it there? It's not so much in the physical sense. It's not so much in one color marrying another color or one culture another culture, but it's now a type of God's chosen people that have been washed white in the blood of the Lamb, have given themselves in spiritual harlotry to the world. And we're in the midst of a church that has and is not the pure white and not the real black darkness of sin but it has been mixed together and it is a gray they went to Nashville and they got some things and then they went to the house of God and they got some things then they brought them to this big machine and they put some in Nashville and some right out of the church. And they mixed it up. And they mixed it and mixed it and dumped it out. And guess who walked out? The Hinton walked They took the real short hair on the women. And the long hair on the women of God. And put it in the mix. And when it came out, it looked like they used jet engines for hair dryers. It needed a long nose for it. All right, thank you, brother.
I'm not trying to be mean. And what I have mentioned is not the epitome of sin. But folks, I want you to know that we are in the midst of something. And you think that we're doing all right? Let me ask you, how long has it been since the power of God has moved on you and woke you out of sleep and tears run out of your eyes and you were heaving and sobbing with a burden and you knelt down in the living room or the bedroom somewhere and you prayed for that lost boy or that lost spouse or that lost daddy or that lost daughter of yours. How long has it been since God's moved on you with a burden? How long has it been since God has used you that set a meeting on fire and you've been the key to a service? How long has it been since you have testified or you have saved or you have given a prophecy or you've done something that brought the glory of God down on the church? Then you try to tell me that you're not doing anything that's displeasing to God. There's folks sitting right here, and oh, I, I listen. You thought that guy was rough. You thought he was rough in verse 25. But there's folks right here. You wouldn't know the spirit of God from a flock of honking geese. You wouldn't know the man of God from a braying donkey in the pulpit. Brother Hampton, who do you have on your mind? Not one individual. But I'm telling you, friend, we are losing something in this hour. And we need to get back and get out of this murky gray business and get away from the blackness and go back to God and say, God, we don't want to be a yucky, mucky, mushy, right in the middle thing. We want to be a separate nation, holy and white, pure and clean, washed in the blood of the Lamb. Hallelujah! Hallelujah! Malcolm Smith may be your favorite teacher. He says good things. But I'll tell you what he said the other day, wasn't he? You know what Malcolm Smith said? And I quote, So you say your daughter does not smoke, and your daughter does not cut her hair, and your daughter does not wear pants. And he said, I'll tell you what about you. That doctrine is a lie right out of the church. Malcolm Smith said it on the radio. What's happened? He's been in the mixer till his brains have been scrambled. And he comes out and he don't know whether he's white or black. And I'm not against everybody that preaches on radio, just most of them. But Daisy Osborne said, and I heard her say it, I hate the word sanctification. I hate it. And she said, I'll tell you why. Because when I went to church as a young lady, they told me, that, and I'm quoting her, that if you had, you had to have a long dress and you had to keep the scissors out of your hair, and she named some other things. But she said, they said, that is a part of sanctification, separation to God. And she said, I hate the word sanctification. Now let me make something clear here. What I'm saying here is not near the core of a problem. I'm only on dealing with a few externals here. But I want to tell you, Daisy has had her brain shook and scrambled along with TL until they don't know whether they're going or coming. God help us. We need some men that know what's going on in this hour. You say, Brother Hampton, you are all wet. We wanted somebody to take us to Mars last night and somebody to take us to Jupiter tonight. And tomorrow, we want you to take us to Pluto. Friend, I'll tell you where we need to take a trip to. We need to take a trip back to these altars and pour our heart out in that prayer in weeping intercession before God and say, God, save us before we go down in the brink of history as heresy in our movement. God, preserve our Pentecostal heritage and save us from losing our pure white color as the nation, as the peculiar people of God. Jesus in parable spoke of something that would happen in the last days. Matthew 13, 24 through 39. He said the kingdom of heaven is likened to this. That a man sowed good seed in his field. The field is the world. 
and he that sows a good seed is the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the children of God. And then he got some men to come and guard the good seed. Now he gave them orders and said, Men, just turn around and look. You see, this is the good seed of God. We want you to guard that. And don't you let anything happen to that. Have you got the orders? We want you to guard that. So, they are to guard that thing. Jesus went on to talk about something else. And then he took. He said, while men slept. You know, if I was the devil, let me before I get to the devil, you know what I'd do if I was going to build people a home tonight and steal them money. If you were to sleep, I would not come in and say, Brother Bell, get up, boy, I'm here to steal your money. waking him up and trying to do something, you know what he done? He put Peter to sleep. And he stayed. He took him. He took him. And he took he took some out. He took some good seed out. Now not after he was sick. there's a mingling of the seed out there. But I'm telling you where it really starts is in the house of God. And what has happened instead of the preachers that once came with the anointing of God dripping off of them with a hatred for sin and a passion for souls, we now come to the pulpit with a love for money and to display our fancy texts and talents. And we're not interested in men's souls. I'm not preaching about us. I'm talking about the seed that has been sown. And finally these men wake up one day and they said, what can we do? Shall we go tear it out? He said, no, don't tear it out. You may damage some. I'm going to add a little more to that. We may not get it all out, but I'll tell you what I believe we can do. I believe we can go in and spread some new in. I believe we can bring some more in. Hallelujah to God. Hallelujah. Brethren, come on back. Praise God. We're going to put some more good seed back in here. Hallelujah. I believe the Lord will give the church an opportunity to get some good seed among us again. Would you praise him right now? Hallelujah. The bottom line is this to what I am preaching tonight. Is... There has been an immigration that has come in. And while the integration has come in, then we, the church of the living God, have been buying in to so many spiritual contraceptives that we hardly have a godly offspring in our offering. And while the charismatics are multiplying to the thousands, we're practicing procreative superintendence. I'm speaking spiritually now, right in the house of God. How long, how many were saved and stayed saved in your church life? 
if we were really multiplying, I'm not here to rebuke it. There wouldn't be basically the same crowd here as we had last year. That thing right under that balcony would be full and chairs would be up and down these aisles if we were really doing what God wanted us to do. Is there anything we can do about it? We must maintain our identity and separation. Second Corinthians 6, 14 through 18. Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has uh, righteousness with unrighteousness? And so forth. And it goes on down. But in verse 18 he said, Wherefore come ye out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. Is there anything that we can do about it? I'm here to say there is something we can do about it. First of all, we need a purification. A brother today asked, how many, if there's anything in your heart, you'd like to raise your hand. I don't know how many hands were raised. I don't know what all was done, but I heard him say, yes, 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 yes. Well, did you get that taken care of? Whatever it is tonight, whatever it is, I don't know what. It may be, it may be something in your home that's hindering you. Could I borrow you to me in a minute? Come here, brother. Hallelujah. Would they come right down here? There's something that may be bothering you. Would you men just, just get a hold of this television here, right here? I want you to get a hold of it and, 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 and let's pack this thing out. Let's get this thing right out of here. Come on. Let's, let's take it out of here. Praise God. We want to purify this thing. We want to clean this up. Praise God. Hallelujah. What about it? There may be some envy in your heart. There may be some strife. There may be some jealousy. Yes, we can preach on externals. But God looks deeper than the hair. God looks deeper than the dress. God looks in the heart. And we need a purification if we're going to stay white. Hallelujah. And do you know what I believe would honor the Lord? Is a repentant heart and intercessory spirit abhorring ourselves out in a cleansing, repentant way before God. And I'm closing pretty quickly. And then, if that is done, then we can receive seed and begin to multiply in the kingdom of God. Now, you dear ladies, you have liked to have the wonderful privilege of bringing the, son of the world, the Son of God, of being the virgin to receive conception from the Holy Ghost and beget the Son of God. High privilege. Listen, there's none greater than Christ. And this is not to minimize. It is a divine principle. Just as Mary received into her body a healthy body, a clean body, a body free from physical disease, she received into her body an active principle from the Holy Ghost, and she conceived and brought forth the Son of God. In the same manner, we the church, will come and move upon us, and he infuse into us that which would conceive in our heart a real burden for a lost soul and lost humanity, and for us to carry that burden in prayer and fasting if we do through the gestation time, however long it would take, until God would bring that individual to repent and let them be born into the family of God. How many of you tonight, you have somebody that's lost in your immediate household? I want to see your hand. I want you to look at that. You that did not raise your hand, if you have a lost son somewhere, or a lost child, there are several other hands. A lost parent, other hands. And we could go on and on. Is there anything we can do about it? Number one, purify the heart. But God gives us a principle in Isaiah 45. And in verse 5, he starts and says, I am God, there is none else. You don't tell me anything. I am God. I created the ocean. I created the universe. I created the world. I do it all. You don't tell me anything. You are nothing but a broken piece of pottery. He speaks to us on earth. 
and shall the potsherd, the broken piece of pottery, shall you strive or talk back to me, the mighty creator? He said, no. But in verse 11, he said, ask of me things to come concerning my son and concerning the work of my hands. Command me. Don't miss that verse, I beg of you, please. Ask of me things to come concerning my son and concerning the work of my hands, command ye me. If I'm going to go tomorrow and try to buy a car, I don't get on my knees and say, now bless God, Lord, I want a Cadillac. I want a car. Lord, I demand you give me a car. I don't do that. I pray and say, Lord, it may not be your will for me to buy a car. It may not be your will for me to buy this car or any car. And Lord, I need to know your will in this matter. If I'm planning on selling my home and going to buy another, I don't need to sit down and just make all kinds of decisions. I need to pray about the Lord's will. You who are single and you're planning to get married, don't just say, well, there she is or there he is. Let's get, it, get on with it. Let's get married. No. You need to pray and seek God's will. But when it comes to his children, and it comes to rescuing people from hell. And it comes to the work of God. We don't have to come and say, Lord, is it your will to convict so-and-so? Second Peter 3 and 9 said that it is not his will that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance. And we need men and women who will come to God and say, Oh, God, I am going to stay here and pray until you send Holy Ghost conviction on that lost one. That, in a sense, is commanding God. When Corin his thus rebelled against God in Numbers chapter 16, verses 44 through 48, 15,000 people were dead. You know what this man done? Aaron went in to the altar. And he got fire from the altar, or incense in the altar, and he fixed it right. And he brought that back out. God was slaying the people, 15,000 dead. And the judgment of God was falling. And there he stood with the scripture before God, fresh from the altar. And the Bible said the plague was stayed because he stood between the living and between the dead. And had he not been to the altar and got the fire and got something there, the plague would have continued and many more would have died. You know why more and more are dying and going to hell? It's because we don't care. And I'm closing real quick. In the Revelation 5 and 8. Four and twenty elders have vials, golden vials, and they're full of sweet odors, which are the prayers of the saints. And there's a little bitty vial. That's the prayers that each one has. But in chapter 8, verses 3 through 5, there is an angel who is not one of the seven angels, but he is Jesus Christ. Jesus is not a created angel. It just talks about him as one day. The Son of God comes to the altar, and he brings a golden pitcher full of mercy. And he gets those little veils of prayers from these 24 hours. And the Bible said he takes that much incense that he has, and he goes to the altar. That with it, he supports prayers of the saints with his intercessory prayers without God. And as he pours that out, there is a sweet white smoke, a smelling smoke, goes up before God. And when that is done, he takes that same vial, sweeps it down on the altar, and he sits it He fills it full of fire. And do you know what he does? He takes it and they cast it to the earth. I know that's a judgment there. 
the pillars of peace. When we pray, when we intercede for lost souls, like Aaron did in typology, we're taking the vial full of sweet odors. And then that great intercessor, Jesus Christ, prays more than we, as he begins to pour out his intercessory prayer before God. And in time, he brings that Holy Ghost and fire, that conviction of the Lord, and God begins to convict for him. Tonight, I feel this should be a real heart-searching time for every one of us. But if you, after you search your own heart, I think we ought to start an intercessory prayer for souls lost and dying and going to hell. Every one of you that raised your hand a moment ago and the questions I asked, would you all raise them today? All of you together. I want you to look. I want you to look. If I would move just a little bit further, how many has got others? We could ask other questions. And just a little ways, you've got a lost neighbor. There's somebody that's called you and said so-and-so is lost. Would you pray for them? And everybody probably right here has got somebody. This has been Foundations of Pentecost. We trust that you have been blessed by today's message. If you would like to know more, please visit us at foundationsofpentecost.com. Thank you.